The practice of being seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. This is a conversation with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships and relationships shape stories. This is Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. And this is Marisa Gowdy, writer and storytelling coach for healers. And this is the practice of being seen. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome to episode five, Permission to be a Unicorn, an interview with Casey Carter. We had so much fun talking with Casey and we really hope that you enjoy listening in to this interview. Let's give you an idea of who Casey is before you listen to the interview. Christopher Carter, also known as Casey, inspires individuals and organizations to thrive in the face of relentless change. He's been featured in Business Insider, On Stage at Wisdom 2.0, and many Good Life Project events. A devout Kriyaban yogi with the Self-Realization Fellowship, Casey is a disciple of Guru Paramahansa Yogananda, author of the spiritual classic Autobiography of a Yogi. Casey is passionate about creating the transformative habit of meditation through daily practice. Join his online community of thousands and access free trainings and guided meditations at www.christophercarter.org. We'll include that in the show notes. And Casey lives in Akron, Ohio with his wife and three children, where they dream of one day flying in a blimp. So today we're here with Christopher Carter, also known as Casey. And I feel like I need to share the story of how Rebecca and I first met him, because it's a unique one. So imagine the scene, we're arriving at summer camp for grown-ups, it's Camp Good Life Project, or GLP, this past August, and we meet so many phenomenal people as we're walking in, everyone's greeting us, everyone's so warm, we know this is going to be a fabulous few days. And then we meet a unicorn. And soon we realized that that was actually made perfect sense in the context of summer camp. And then over the next few days, the next day, we met someone who led meditation at six o'clock in the morning. And then we met somebody who led this amazing um, session about managing life transformation. And it just so happens that that person was the same guy. And that would be Casey. So when we're talking about transformation and seeing yourself and how it is to be seen by the world, it seemed pretty perfect that we talked to Casey. So welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh my gosh. What a, what an awesome, what an awesome intro. <laughs> you know, summer, summer camp and camp GLP is such a, a maelstrom of positive love and energy and it's the best job on earth. I always tell people that's the best weekend I could ever work. Um, that it kind of goes by in a blur and you forget you know, dip, you know, you forget um, that there's so many different perspectives of it. You know, I have mine that includes the unicorn mask for sure, but also, you know, everything you said about giving people and myself permission to take off those masks. So I, I'm, thanks for capturing that. That was really cool to, to relive that with you. Oh, I love that, Casey. I love how you're just, you're already talking about the permission to take off the mask. Like it's, it's twofold though, right? It's also permission to, to be bold and to put yourself out there and to be the unicorn, but then it's also the permission to take it off. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. If, if you don't mind, I'd love to uh, – a funny thing, funny slash painful thing that happened since camp was, uh, you know, all this political turmoil that's, you know, ripping families apart and choosing sides for us and stuff. I, I try not to have that – let that happen to my family. But um, my brother actually, uh, who I love dearly, um, he, he kind of lost his mind a little bit on Facebook one night. And, uh, and he, he said something about – you know, he called me a 40-year-old unicorn. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like like I was a poser or a, a clown of some sort or, you know, it's something really, really amusing, you know, that was designed to be kind of a dagger, you know. And, and the only way I could respond to it was, you're right, it is the best effing job on earth. And, you know, and... And he he had the same grandfather I did, who's my total archetype blueprint for all of this, you know, whatever this lens I have about, you know, showing people the magic in their lives. And, you know, and I said, you know, I told my brother, you know, think back on what Pops would say. And he would say something to the effect of, he'd probably choose different words, but he'd probably say something to the effect of, unicorn's a real bitch. I have a crush on your grandfather. I've got to say, after reading your manifesto, <laughs> I, I am feeling that complete sense of. Thanks, thanks for saying that. I mean, he, uh, you know, I have this amazing picture of him uh, that's that's in the manifesto. He looks like Walt Disney sitting on the swing in the backyard. And he has white pants on, and um, probably white shoes. But he, uh, he was such a mythical Walt Disney type character that um, to be in his presence, and I, and I think I captured it in in the piece, in the manifesto. But just being around that, and that's what I try to give to people at camp because that was literally the best gift I could have gotten as a child was access to somebody who literally viewed the world through two different lenses. One was magnificent, and the other one was called tremendous. You know, so, so even the little things became extraordinary. And that, I think that that is such a, a vital energy for people. And it's, it's, it's nothing like – there's no false pretense or it's not inauthentic. It's very real. Like the guy had a, the fascination of a child. And um, yeah, so I, I love when people resonate with that. It gets me all sorts of giddy. You know, it's interesting because often in my work as a relationship therapist, I'm often talking to people about the littlest moments and being able to slow down and find the magic in those moments, in those everyday little moments. And that's like, it sounds like that's what your grandfather passed down to you. You know, it was, uh, I look at him now as kind of a guru type of figure. You know, I have, you know, my, my true guru. Uh, through the the yoga and the meditation I practice, but my my grandfather was a very powerful teacher on the path that did really give me permission to look at those little seemingly mundane events and have them become extraordinary and um, you know when you do that, time and space and everything kind of expands you know and your heart expands and you know fortunately, I have three crazy kids running around our house, and they give me all these opportunities to either seize that and take them up on it or to steamroll over it and, you know, be a unconscious dad. Like, you know, we all kind of <laughs> grapple with at different times, but it, it is that, that is truly where all, all the cliches and all the Zen, you know, wisdom and anecdotes are true that it, it truly does happen in the moment and they tend to be tiny and they will pass you by. Yeah. Well, you know, I just would love to reflect something back at you that you just wrote pretty recently and 
I hope this doesn't make you too uncomfortable because when people do this to me, I sometimes get freaked out. But you just wrote this, so I think hopefully you'll remember that it came through you. But it seems so perfectly in line um, because I think there's another side of this, right? In terms of tremendous, what was the two words you, you used? Tremendous and and magnificent, right? And so you just read about, I held this false belief that people relied on me only to see the magic of life, Then I needed to project my positive all-is-well light in any and all circumstances. It's a job that has felt increasingly important in our brutal world, facing ominous times. Well, the truth is, all anyone needs, to do, needs us to do is to show up and be human. Our messy, stressy, fleetingly genius, temporarily flailing selves. The magic is always in the rebound, in our redemption. Mm-hmm. You wrote that, man. Uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's crazy because, like, you know, I think we spend a good, good amount of our lives uh, trying to become somebody that we want to spend time with. Uh, or that we're oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, we're, that we just want to be somebody that we could hang with and, and be cool with, cool with that. And, you know, s- like my youth was spent out running that or, or, you know, putting on false airs of, or disguises of trying to be something. But when I hear those words back at me, you know, I do think that it was probably written shortly after a deep meditation around, um, you know, so, some of this ongoing transformation work I've been doing to, um, you know, give myself at first, it was the permission to glow in the dark that, that, you know, I'm, I'm willing to show up in this dark world and like, like all my heroes are and, um, try to be the light, you know, but then the responsibility of that to not become some sort of sideshow court jester and to also be willing to show all sides of the coin, which, you know, typically are, pretty messy and ugly and, um, you know, uncomfortable to share. But what I've found in the last couple of years is that the more that I'm willing to share that and be uncomfortable with that, that that's what people really wanted was, you know, maybe, maybe a few extroverted, crazy people like me wanted to glow in the dark, but the most people just wanted to be around real human beings, you know? And, uh, you know, so I, I have no tolerance for posers anymore, including myself. So it's, uh, it's it's cool to hear that. Wow, good good choice, good excerpt. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just trusting the unicorns and the fairies. They're the ones who pulled it out for me before we, we talked. So. Yeah, they, they work for me. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, you were just talking about how people like are drawn towards that uncomfortable place. How they they kind of need to see your own discomfort in a way in order for you to to bring that light in. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Like where where was it that you started to realize that? You know, I, I grew up in uh, playing in bands, and I always had a really high value for true, authentic musicianship. So, you know, an example I always bring up is the bass player Flea for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He was an early, early hero, still is in mm-hmm. so many ways. Um, his, his acceptance speech into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame will break your heart. You should watch it if you've never seen it. He cries and talks to his mom from the stage. But, um, <laughs> but that level of realness that you cannot fake and it was it came through in the way that he attacked his base it comes through in who he is as a person and then it you know as i started getting into songwriters like ani defranco paul simon uh true crafts people in their art they were not holding back from the um it wasn't just this polish of the perfect pop song by any means it was let me show you some pretty dark terrifying stuff but really show you the magic of how I'm willing to show up in it. 
And, yeah. and that just kind of gave me that inspiration I needed to just keep pushing that. And, you know, so it became, you know, if you read my manifesto, it's not just about the music, it's about how you show up in your work. And can you bring your whole self to work? Can you bring your whole self into your family situation? Are you, you know, willing to tell your partner that you don't know everything and you can be an idiot? I mean, they're, they're very aware usually that you can be an idiot, but uh, are they aware that... You don't have to tell them that part. Right, right. Uh, can, but can, there's beauty in admitting it out loud. Right. You there's got a, humility you, there. the ownership of it. Exactly. Yeah, you got a cop to it, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so that's been been the exploration is that as I peel back those layers, I mean, I look at pictures of myself from even five years ago before I, you know, really committed to sobriety and got super serious about the meditation practice, you know, and I have, I I look like this uh, really dynamic metrosexual guy with a sweet faux hawk and like a bright red dress shirt on and like, like all this, like this spectacle and and it's cool and I wasn't like a douchebag, but I look at it now as just a kind of the costume of the day and yeah so it's just it's that ongoing refinement to get down to the essence of whatever this is well and i love that when you were actually promoting new sobriety you used it which is your your program for people who are you know wanting to quit the drinks for you know however period of time they decide whether it's permanently or for a 30-day cleanse you use those pictures of yourself in your marketing, which I just thought was just awesome. And he's like, there it is. You, you were like 21 and, and then probably through your 20s and into your 30s. And that was really cool. Yeah, it's scary is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, willing. I mean, we all have, a lot of us have them on, on Facebook anyway, but you've gathered them together for us to see. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm curious if you could bring us in a little bit. You're, you're talking a little bit now about your new sobriety program. And one of the things that we really love to do is talk to people about those moments of transformation in their lives. And how did, like, what was the story there? What, what helped, what relationships helped you shape that transformation in your life and then helped you bring that transformation into the world in a positive way? Oh yeah. Well, thanks for asking that. It's uh, yeah, well really it goes back to, you know, about 12 years ago I started meditating, but you know, fast forward to end of 2011 I was hardcore seeking, you know, my, my job was totally out of alignment. I was a director of sales. I was responsible for $7 million number. And I was just start, starting to show increasingly erratic behavior, like acting out and just running away from the life I had created. And I, I've done this before. I wrote about it and, you know, my life imploded when I was 26. That's in the manifesto of health crises that showed up on the uh, heels of a lot of inauthentic behavior. And you get these wake-up calls, and if you're smart or half-conscious anyway, you pay attention to them, you know, ideally. <laughs> so end of 2011, uh, our third child, my son Leon, had shown up, and I was just kind of – I went through a growth phase, a spiritual growth phase with each, with each of the three kids because I think you have to to expand your heart for that amount of love you yeah. need to give. and. So the job was out of alignment and you know I got into the work of Jonathan Fields. He released a manifesto around the Good Life Project. I applied for that program and got into the immersion and started doing some deep, deep, radical introspection around myself and the business and what I wanted to create in the world. Well, simultaneously, while my son Leon was being born, actually in the birthing unit, I was, I was finishing my guru's book, Autobiography of a Yogi, for the first time. I've read it about 11 times since. <clears throat> and the the combination of 2012 of just being in that business 
entrepreneurship kind of mastermind environment alongside getting deeper and deeper into um, metaphysics, Kriya Yoga practice, aligning and attuning with the teachings of the guru. It was it was a lot at once. If, if you haven't gathered, I tend to not half-ass things. You know, I'm kind of I'm kind of uh, all off or fully epic. You know, those are my two speeds, and it you know it drives my wife crazy as it does a lot of people in my life. But you know, it I've always been you know once I get enamored with an idea, I go all in. I'm like, this is fascinating. Let's go deeper. And so so the meditation thing, it just started really shining the light on the behaviors that were holding me back, holding my progress back. And drinking had been on the, you know, under the microscope for a while. I was stopping, starting, stopping, starting. So I quit that in April of 2012. I could see now how fast this evolution happened, but at the time it felt like it was a long time coming, you know. But once that sobriety um, thing was in place and the booze was out of the way, it it really lifted my vibe into a new place of, oh my gosh, maybe I am somewhat of a spiritual teacher Maybe I am supposed to launch meditation programs at my company and change my role. And, and all that happened in 2012. And then, you know, wh- whatever is happening today is just kind of the progression of that. You know, th- where that's bringing me is that I'm thinking, you know, all right, so you notice these behaviors that held you back. And then you get to this place where you're bringing this, you're bringing this into the world. And I mean, that's, a lot of people would say that that's kind of like a ballsy move, right? Like there's a lot of people get held back from one piece of that to the next piece. It's hard enough to notice the behaviors that are holding you back, but then to go to that next place where you're sharing those ideas with, with the world and helping other people through them. You know, as a transformational professional, as a, as a therapist, I know that there's also a spiritual journey in there. You know, when, when you can teach, it makes it somewhat more yours also. So I'm really kind of, that that piece in there, there there's something about that that you know I'm so curious about I want to I want to learn more from you in regards to how you made that so well you know the the outer experience that we all live is a total direct reflection of the inner experience and you know you said you know bravery and risk taking risk I mean all these things that you know entrepreneurship requires being out on my own now you know providing all the income by doing this thing that I do John Acuff, who spoke at Wisdom 2.0 a year or two ago, he had this great quote that said something like, you know, people wonder what it feels like to be so brave. And, you know, typically feeling brave or being brave feels like being scared shitless, you know? <laughs> so I, I, I've always been incredibly risk averse in the physical world, you know, being safe. I married young. I started a family young. I did a lot of scripted quaint American dream type things early on, a lot, largely as a reflection of my grandfather's values that he instilled in me. He had six kids. I wanted three. Um, and, and so, but, but where I was willing to really go for broke and, uh, take a lot of risks was on the spiritual level as a seeker and as, um, kind of a, a guinea pig in that way. And I knew that I would not stop or ever cease until I found my path. And then once I found my path, you know, I was telling my wife last week that the, the loneliness and, and the challenge that comes with the spiritual path once you know you're on it is that it eventually becomes a razor's edge that you know the slightest wind blow could take you off of it and it's kind of a brutal fall and climb back up. And 
so I was always willing to go that way. And, I, you know, I've, I've met with many, many teachers and guides since then who've told me that's probably part of my karmic path. It's there's probably some past life stuff involved. There's a whole lot of heavy stuff there that I'm willing to look at and consider. But I knew that I would not create the outer experience that I was desiring if I wasn't willing to do some deep, often painful spiritual work. You know, and I'm hearing that you recently had this conversation with your wife. So that brings me into this curiosity around the relationships that hold you and keep you steady through all of this. You know, on, while you're living on this lonely razor's edge, there's, there are these people that hold you. You know, it's, it's funny. The, the relationships, I had a great talk with, her, with my wife this morning. I'll share a little bit with you. But the, the relationships in your life... Um, they, they're really responsible for everything, you know, whether, you know, what resources you get, what help you get, what resistance you get that you react to. I mean, the, the best gift I ever got was from my mother was this, this crappy little photocopied list of, of 12 things that all successful people do. And I hung it on every dorm room wall, bulletin board. It made it into my cubicle. It made it into my nicer offices as I moved up in my career. And it's still with me in a little binder downstairs in a laminated sleeve. And the, the first thing is, the number one thing is marry the right person. It will determine 90 plus percent of your happiness or misery. And um, I, I was fortunate to marry young and I found the right woman. And when I was talking to Gail, you know, talking to Gail this morning and she's getting ready to turn 40, this beautiful young lady I married when she was 21, um, is turning 40. I can't believe it. And <laughs> we're, we're going to be in Encinitas next week, which is where the autobiography of Yogi was written. That's where we go to escape from the world. And we're going to celebrate her 40th birthday. And she was saying, you know, she's having her own awakening around activism and, um, a lot of the things that the world climate is creating in people. And mm -hmm. she's, and she said, you know, I'm thinking about kicking the drinks, you know, when I turn 40 and, um, you know, just eliminating anything that holds me back basically. And I just realized that how deeply influential we are on one another. And I, I would never in a million years, I mean, it's one of the first spiritual principles is never try to convert the people right around you. You know, I don't try to project any of my crazy onto them, you know, like I don't want, I don't want them to tell me to, you know, watch my sugar any more than they want me to tell them to meditate more. Right. But, but it happens, right? Like, I mean, it's osmosis. We, when we are around people, it's like that, that saying about, you know, surround yourself with five people that you want to I can't remember the exact saying, You're but you know where I'm going. You're the average of the five people. You're the average, yeah. yeah. You're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. So there's something about that. When we spend time with people, we rub off on one another. We, they we, rub off on us. And I think they were kind of obligated to help one another in very subtle ways, kind of uh, soften all the edges so mm -hmm. that, you know, if, if anybody sees that, you know, the work I put into trying to be somebody that I enjoy the company of or, or not be a, a dick or whatever. Um, I, I think we're all kind of pieces of jagged glass in a, in a turbulent sea and that we want to end up as some beautiful piece of sea glass eventually. And yeah. some of those little things, they, they never – you know, that influence doesn't happens, happen when you try to be overt about it. You know, it's so like my, my wife is a great example of somebody who's – probably reminded me in a billion different ways and in very nice and very direct ways to pick up certain things or to put things back in the right place. You know, um, <laughs> you know, on, on my bad days, I, I kind of feel like the oldest of the four children, but 
there's other times where I realized that the life that we created was all in an attempt to kind of earn the, um, to earn what we committed to so long ago, which was this vision of this family we wanted, you know? So it's, it's been a pleasure to grow and change, but it, it has to rub off on one another. But sometimes yeah. it's, sometimes it's frustrating. You know, I gotta be honest. It's, you know, it's never as fast as you would like it to happen, but, but it happens. It, well, it's a slow evolution. It's the long game. Yeah. Right. You know, that's, that's a great point is that I, I see so much mythology and, and straight up crap around, you know, cutting corners and hacking mastery. And, you know, um, I've just never bought into that. Like anything that, you know, that you picked up on at camp, you know, music or meditation or, you know, comedy or, or these things, it's just kind of settling into the long-term commitment of it. You know, there, none yeah. of this happens over, you know, flipping a switch or, you know, taking the, 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 the webinar on the next, the, the seven guaranteed steps to make you a <laughs> powerful meditator that'll create a seven figure business. It's like, cut the shit, you know, it's like, right. you know, it's the long term. It's I practice. feel like we're seeing a little less of that. I'm hoping we're maturing a little bit as as a society. As a society, but maybe that's just my own lens that is no longer picking up on the prom- false promises. Well, I think you have more know. and more people that are willing to wage jihad on that whole <laughs> batch of lies that reeks of beef and cheese. It's such a it's such a lie. But um, there there are. Don't get me wrong. I'm reading Tim Ferriss's new book, Tools of Titans. I love it. I love the biohacking. I love you know distilling down great performance into actionable steps. However, all those people that have attained mastery have been doing it for 10 plus, 20 plus years. Right. Yeah. Right. right. You know, and I think you ha- you bring something really interesting to this because when I'm looking at your, your biography, I'm also realizing how much of a business background you bring. Yes. Right. Can you talk a little bit from like the perspective of what where things kind of merge in regards to the spiritual and the entrepreneurship. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's funny how all this stuff is top of mind this week. I, I was in Chicago the past couple of days um, talking to new organizational clients about I, I do consulting work around culture, optimizing business culture so people can thrive and the business can thrive, and as well as meditation for business. And my, my background was in uh, sales, first sales, you know, revenue. And then uh, sales training and development. So I was one of 15 salespeople at a company I started with when we had 40 employees. And then we grew it to 700 people and 100 plus salespeople. And so I saw, I had a front row seat for scale. And I learned a lot about aligning the values and the virtues of the organization with the expanding consciousness that's unquestionably happening in the world. So, you know, great examples of this are, you know, guys like Steve Jobs. I, I spoke about Steve Jobs at a, at a conference called Wisdom 2.0. And there, there's a guy, you know, a fiery personality, no doubt, but a, a guy unquestionably who is well in tune with his own meditation practice as a Zen Buddhist, as well as the emerging technology. And you see the proliferation of that. So it's, it's this powerful alignment. You know, I, I look at my mission as I'm here to just help facilitate the upliftment of that consciousness. And I do it through a lot of different mediums. You know, one of them is organizational work. Last time I checked, most people would want to raise the vibe in their office. You know, there, there tends to be a decent amount of suffering in the business sphere. And I just think that business is another metric 
to show us or the, the performance of a company is just another metric to show us how well we are aligning with that consciousness and doing the right thing. I, I do have a sense that these things are interconnected. Yeah. You know, I think I, I, somewhere in your manifesto, you kind of mentioned, and we're going back to that concept of bravery, and that it felt like it was difficult for you to get to the point where you were able to put your lens statement out there that said, my mission is to uplift others through my creativity and inspired example. Mm. Yeah, that was the ball's move back in 2012. You know, it's funny, I was at the gym today running and I listened to, <laughs> this is, you're, you're about to find out exactly how crazy and how far I'm willing to go with this stuff. Uh, <laughs> is that I, I led a retreat on navigating personal transformation last fall. And one of the exercises we did is we had everybody craft their own lens statement. And then I took them down into my recording studio and they recorded the audio versions of those. And we produced it over a set of ambient beats, like these ambient, um, this ambient music. Ah. So when you listen to it at the gym, it's incredibly powerful if you think about waking up and meditating for an hour, then going into the gym and running a few miles and listening to your own voice remind you of the virtues that you're pursuing. Oh, that is so amazing. It, I have chills up my spine. It, it's it's pretty powerful and it's it's very you know, it's very personal private work. So so the when when I tell people that we do this exercise, I kind of give them permission out of the gate. I said what we're about to do right now is going to feel like some Stuart Smalley Saturday night live BS <laughs> and your, your ego your ego is going to call, you know, bullshit on it the whole time and say, "Oh my gosh, is this like, you know, what a load of crap." But I always say too that it only feels like that until you start believing it, and once you start believing it, and you start embodying it and feeling it, and then your 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 outer experience starts giving it back to you, reflecting back to you that that's how you're showing up. Um, there's no more disbelief there, you know. It just becomes becomes your truth. So that's that's become kind of the the main practice. So when when you hear when you tell me that lens statement from 2012, I'm thinking back on the different upgrades of it, you know. So. I, I I happened to forget my earbuds this morning, so I actually recited it to myself out loud, quietly, not like a crazy person, quietly as I was running. <laughs> and I was I first started with my first upgrade of the lens statement, which was I consciously pursue excellence. I joyfully expect everything to work out. I have fun, and that's what I do every day. There was there's a lot of that inspiration stuff in there. But the newest one, like what you find with that stuff, and this is why you know I help organizations upgrade their mission statements all the time, is because it's a dynamic universe and things require upgrading. So what got me to a certain point, that first one you read, it got me to the point of releasing the manifesto and just being com barely comfortable enough to say, I'm here to inspire people. Mm. Um, but you know, a few years down the road, the lens statement now is something along the lines of my energy and love is a juggernaut creating ripples of impact in so many beautiful lives. Being a yogi householder is the center of my universe. I command gravitas with others to the level I demand it with myself. The proof of Ooh. my work is forged in ruthless self-knowledge. And it goes on and on. But when you, when that becomes your, um, you know, part of the spiritual I mean, practice, yeah. It sounds like it becomes a mantra in a way. It be, it's something that like you, it, you know it in your bones. Well, it's a, it becomes a prime directive, you know, and I, I tend to not take credit or take credit less and less depending on how much ego is involved. But it's, it all comes from God. It comes from the guru and it, it comes from, you know, tell me, you know, when I, when I pray in meditation, I say, what am I here to do? Tell, 
tell me what my mission is, remind me the mission. And so when, when you sit down to write a lens statement like that, it becomes a mission that you check in with once a day. And, and it becomes, it also becomes very clear when you're making choices that aren't in alignment with that, you know? So it's like, you know, why are you sugar binging in your car on Swedish fish if you, uh, if you want your energy and vitality to be at a certain level, you know, it just becomes another level of scrutiny. Absolutely. You know, I just, I not, not that I've ever, not that I've ever done that last night, for instance, I've never done that. That was not a voice of experience right there. You're just making all this up as you go along, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> Hypothetical. Right. Absolutely. But I just, you know, the way you talk about meditation makes it so real. And clearly that's part of your work when you're bringing it into the workplace, but understanding and helping make it so clear, this is so much more than just sitting on the cushion and emptying your mind. And that it's such the support for all this very practical work you're doing in the world. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's really the core, you know, it's the meditative practice. I, I, I evangelize a lot about it online because there is, no other habit that you could cultivate that has the potential to upgrade all other habits in your life. So that's one thing, right? If you want to be a better person, show up better, drink less, eat better food, whatever, meditation brings the awareness you need to make all that happen. Um, But also, too, it creates the level of discernment and self-reflection necessary to show up in better and better ways when you're in this barrage of distraction and other very strong voices telling you how you should be and how you should live. So it kind of, it, it kind of amplifies the self-directive that, that probably origi- originates in a divine source, you know? So I call that, you know, discerning between the signal inside yourself or giving into the static. So I, I think at a fundamental level, the reason I'm so preachy about meditation is that, you know, I mean, look around. I mean, we are in a chaotic kind of shitstorm right now politically in our world. You're seeing the old paradigm, masculine energy, control and command fall away and it's going down. It wants to take everything down with it. And then you're seeing the emergence of some really powerful divine energy that, let's face it, is going to save the planet and take us where we need to go. But when you're in that storm, the ability to tune in to truth and what is true for you and what your values are and where you find your power, it, it, to me, it, it is paramount. And It's everything. Right. It is everything. So, so stilling practice in general, just to be able to see what's what, it, it's, you know, it's non-negotiable. So can I, can I bring this back a few steps? Because I'm imagining that some of our listeners might be listening to us and going like, yeah, that sounds wonderful, but... Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So how, how did you start meditating? And like, what kind of advice might you have for someone that, you know, this, is, this all sounds really great, but they're like, that stuff is just so hard. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> it's kind of like being brave and having that feel like, uh, you know, being scared most of the time. <laughs> Kind of like coming to camp and meeting the unicorn and going like, I don't fit in here. <laughs> Whoa, what the hell is wrong with that guy? Like, what's the, what's no, it the... was me. I saw it as me. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. a unicorn. Right, right. Yet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next year. Yeah. So, so with meditation, I, I had this talk with a coaching client this morning <clears throat> because he was saying what we all do, you know, what we all do is say we compare our beginning with somebody else's middle and we say, oh man, I want to be meditating an hour. I want to be running a marathon or I want to be, you know, a seven figure business. And we don't take into account the the buildup that it takes to get there. Right. 
So 12 years ago, when I started meditating, it was in the most haphazard, failure-oriented kind of way, which was, oh, I, I think I meditated once at yoga. At the end of yoga, you lay there in corpse pose and you meditate, right? Well, typically you fall asleep. So I would go down in the basement and fall asleep on the floor in corpse pose and I would call that meditation, you know? And, um, and then you start getting wise. You're like, I'm going to sit up straight. I'm going to do this. And then you're like, wow, it feels windy in here. It's because you're falling asleep still. It's just like you're bobbing back and forth and you're feeling this wind, right? So I, I share that to say that like as, as polished or as buttoned up as I seem to be with my practices – I started where everybody did, and it was a messy, failure-ridden process. But what I tell people when they're starting out is that look at it like marathon training. You go out and maybe you run a block or two if you haven't run before, and you sit for five minutes, and you you know, you know just become conscious of the posture and just practice clearing your mind for five minutes. And uh, you practice clearing your mind for five minutes and then you keep building. So I, I created a tool online for people. It's all free. If you go to thisepiclife.com slash 30, it's a 30-day meditation challenge. It gives you a prompt every day. And the whole goal of that was just m- me to give back everything that, that truly started the, the path of transformation in my own life, which was developing the practice. So over 30 days, the guarantee is you will have a practice of 15 minutes a day, seven days a week, no excuses. Uh, because I lovingly, playfully kick their ass into doing it. Because what what took me twelve, it took me about eight or nine years to get to fifteen minutes a day. I know how to get people there in thirty days, and but it's I, but it's all through you know just a lot of self compassion or reminding them that like you know meditation isn't this myth that you see on the cover of Time magazine of typically a white woman with blonde hair meditating with candles dressed in white. You know, it's like so idyllic and she, you know, her mind is clear and she's all happy. No, meditation is some hard ass work of sitting there feeling like you have monkeys crawling in through the windows a lot of the time and being willing to just shoo them away as many times as necessary. Yeah. It's that damn monkey mind. It keeps showing up. You know, One of the things that I heard you talking about in there was that messy failure oriented process. And I think that that's, that's something that so many of us really need help embracing. Yeah. Right. You know, that no matter what we're doing, whether it's a relationship or it's growing a business or it's being a parent or it's meditating, um, that messy fit, like failure is a part of the process. It, it's, yeah. Without it, we don't have a process. Fail, or, you know, it's, and it's kind of the conventional wisdom in business these days is the, is the business environment becomes more agile and, and volatile and, and uncertain is that you have, to, you have to fail quick, fail often, fail soon. I mean, failure is part of the equation. But th- one of the most powerful spiritual lessons I learned last year from my, one of my teachers, Dr. Alice Bandy, we uh, partnered for that workshop um, that Marissa mentioned in, at camp, was the... Um, the, the, the notion of being willing, you know, so when I was, you know, five years ago when I was a faux hawked, uh, express for men wearing, you know, freewheeling salesperson, I was not willing to publicly fail. You know, I was willing to look awesome at all times and I was willing to, you know, have this facade, but the, the willing to, to, um, to entertain failure, you know, walking around the streets of Chicago the last couple of days, you know, I might have a lot of outward success in certain areas of my life, but there's always an element of failure and, 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 a, and certainly a willingness to, to fail and to fail publicly. Mm. You know, I'm thinking now about the title of our podcast and the work that we're doing, which is the practice of being seen. And that 
ties really beautifully in. I'm curious if you can kind of talk a little bit just about what that means to you. The, the, the will, and give me the exact words again, the willingness. Oh, well, I was, I was thinking how you were talking about the willingness to publicly fail mm-hmm. and just how that, how that ties into this whole practice of being seen, the, the whole concept of it. Right. You know, so where it takes me is that we all have this fundamental need to be seen and to be heard. And if, if we're really hurt by the actions of another or we're, you know, really passionately pissed off about something, it's because we feel like we're not being seen or heard. And so to do that and what we're taught growing up by our culture and like advertising drives a lot of this is that, you know, you need to look a certain way, you need to act a certain way, you need to, you know, typically like a lot of materialistic values add up to quote unquote being seen or making a splash or whatever that, you know, whatever it's framed as when in essence, what people really need is to see your heart and your willingness to show that you care and to look deeply in the eyes and pause and to make time. You know, is that something that everybody's good at 100% of the time? No, it's a practice. You know, you have to like deeply practice that. But that's really what it brings up for me. And, and also the willingness to, you know, show your scars, show your ass, show, like, in, insert your negative side, whatever. You know, the thing that I battled with a lot over the last couple of years as I was meditating more was uh, impatience. It's, it's kind of the, the, the current dragon on the path that I'm unquestionably addicted to as a American male, probably a white entitled American male, that it's a drug that needs to be eradicated if I want to keep moving, not, or just at least managed. And, you know, so I have a less tolerance for, you know, the, uh, how that shows up for my life. So when I share on Facebook or some other place about how I'm, you know, tackling my own impatience and how that shows up, people tend to really respond because they're battling the same thing, you know, and people, so it gives them a chance is, is I'm willing to be seen. It gives people an avenue to, to see themselves. Yeah. We often talk about how one of the fundamental pieces of the, of the practice of being seen is the willingness to look in and see yourself. That, Mm you know, when you can see yourself, then you can bring this more authentic version of you to the world that other people can see and connect with as well. Mm. And that sounds like exactly what you're talking about. It is. There, do you remember, were you guys hip to a show when you were kids called Romper Room? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, they, when they said my name, that was when it, like, what, yeah. Well, what was the last <laughs> thing that Miss Molly did every day in Romper Room? What was it called? Oh, gosh. Do you remember when she did the name thing? It was called the Magic Mirror. The, yeah, Let's say it. Romper, stomper, bomper, boo. Tell me, tell me, tell me, do. Magic mirror, tell me today. Did all my friends have fun at play? I see Rebecca and I see Marissa and I see Chrissy. But when you when you heard your name, you kind of lost that it, right? Was it. Right, because you're being seen. Yeah. And she holds up this mirror that doesn't have a mirror in it. It's, a, it's an open frame of a handheld mirror. And I, you know, I took that metaphor into you know, with me through a lot of periods in my life where I, you know, lately I've been thinking that it's our job to be that magic mirror for other people. You know, my grandfather was certainly that for, you know, generations of kids in his neighborhood, including me. I mean, he, he, he helped me see the absolute best in myself and what is possible. And that's what's so attractive about a personality like that is that they're, they're willing to bravely, 
hold up a mirror for you and say, do you see how powerful you are? Do you see how extraordinary you are? And uh, it makes me emotional because I think there's an aspect of my work that strives for that of just showing people, you know, that's what kids need to see when they're, you know, learning an, an instrument or learning a sport. They need to hear, I love watching you practice. I love watching you improve. I love your unique spin on this. And um, that to me, it's at the core of being seen and helping yeah. people be seen. Helping people see their own unicorn. Right, exactly. Do you, do you realize <laughs> you're not just a 40-year-old white guy in, the, in, in Northeast Ohio. You have unicorn potential. <laughs> Even though you're a 40-year-old white guy. Even though, despite the fact... <laughs> I'm a, I'm a spry guy. I'm a spry 40, though. I'll, I'll just say that. It's the unicorn blood. It's, it is, for sure. <laughs> well, you just it, the older you get, you just realize that um, I, I don't tend to get older much anymore. I just tend to get better at certain things yeah. and you know, find new struggles to grapple with. And, uh, but it, it's truly just a number. Yeah, yeah. It's a ripeness or a state of mind. Casey, it's been so amazing talking to you today thank you so much for making time for us oh my pleasure i uh i hope you uh i hope you and your listeners got a little bit about what a little bit of what you you needed and uh yeah i look forward to listening to it Absolutely. we look forward to sharing it um and so we're going to have a lot of information in our show notes as well uh with links to all of casey's amazing offerings and programs well, thanks so much i i appreciate the opportunity for more great content, check out practiceofbeingseen.com and spread the word by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. Music written and performed by Christopher Ferris and produced at Kidneystone Studio.